0: Hey, happy Sabbath. Hey, always great to see so many friendly faces. This is like, that's like my favorite moment of every week is being able to get up, turn around, and see so many friendly faces, right? Just a, hey, I mean, it's, you know, I guess this is Thanksgiving Sabbath, right? Because it's the Sabbath before Thanksgiving. So, you know, hey, it's nice to celebrate the Thanksgiving Sabbath with a family. Amen? It's just fantastic. Hey, if, you're, if this is your first time joining us, we have taken on the most difficult challenge that other people might say. We're not saying it, but other people might say it, where we're journeying through the book of Numbers for the holiday season. And Numbers, I mean, it just sounds like, you know, it sounds like pulling teeth. I mean, it just sounds, Numbers. But we actually learned, we've been journeying, this is, this is week four, but we learned that to, to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, their book would have not been Numbers. That comes, the, the word Numbers comes from the Latin, numeri. But their title would have been, The Lord Spoke. And so we're journeying through this book because we believe that God still speaks today. In fact, I believe that God is going to speak in a very profound way for, for all of us, but I think He has some people in mind in particular today. So, so we're going to pause, and we're going to ask God to speak powerfully. Father, we want to we just pause before we open up Your Word, because we understand that we have this tendency to, to just go ahead and, and run ahead of You. Lord, we have this tendency to think, yeah, I know that story. We have this tendency to think, yeah, we we know about God. But, but Lord, we're asking that you would step into the sanctuary as you do so well, so powerfully, so mightily, that we would leave here almost with this glow around our faces because we have seen you and heard you speak. And, Lord, we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Last Sabbath, as we, uh, we talked about preparation, we talked about how right before Israel was to leave Mount Sinai, they've been at this mountain. Can you imagine being in one place, uh, camping for a long time? And so Israel, they're in the wilderness, and they're at this mountain, Mount Sinai, and they've been there for over a year, and they're now on the move. And they, before they got up to leave, before the cloud, God's presence led them, they were to have a meal. And so we talked about how that meal was to remind them to receive God personally, to receive Him thoroughly, holistically, and to receive Him in community, corporately. So this was the question that we asked. Have you received Christ personally, thoroughly, and corporately? Because if if we haven't prepared, then what we're about to find will be incredibly daunting. And Israel is actually going to run into some giants. But before we can get into Israel running into those giants, we have to talk about this very heated debate. I mean, it's more of a debate than who is the the greatest basketball player of all time. Is it MJ or is it LeBron? I mean, that's a pretty contested debate. But this, there's a debate that's even more contested than that. It's more contested than, you know, is is it M&Ms or Skittles? It's more contested than, than Colgate or Crest. And it's about how to get rid of the hiccups. See, everyone has a theory about how to get rid of the hiccups. Some will say that if you, you, have to, you have to hang upside down. And then some will say that you have to drink some water. And then some will say you have to hold your breath. Right? But depending on who is telling you how to get rid of the hiccups, that is going to strongly influence whether or not you're going to go and try it. Because let's be honest. Which one of us, if we had hiccups, and sometimes hiccups are painful, right? Sometimes you get the, the hiccups, and it's, it's almost like you feel it in your chest, right? And it's just inconvenient. Like, it's, you just start to feel the pain. And, and then you're, you're hesitant because you know that, oh, here comes another cycle, right? Here comes another hiccup. And then it, and then it happens, and you, and you feel it, and, you're, and you just want sweet deliverance. Can anyone relate? Right? But depending on who tells you how to get rid of the hiccups you might go do something absolutely crazy, like hang upside down from the monkey bars. Because you think that they have, because of who has told you it, they have some knowledge, right? They've given you a promise that if you go and do this, you will get rid of the hiccups. Now, I can promise you, I know how to get rid of the hiccups 100% of the time. 100% without fail. I I can give you the secret today. On how to get rid of the hiccups. So, here's the story. So, I get the hiccups. In my hiccups, I very rarely get hiccups. But when I get the hiccups, they're painful. They're just outright painful. It's not, you can't just like sit and just kind of, yeah, they'll pass. I know some people, they're just, oh man, I don't, they just got the strength of Samson. Because they can, just, they can just sit there and hiccup after hiccup after hiccup. No, 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 no. When I get the hiccups, it's like pain. Like, I feel like I'm being killed every time I have a hiccup. And so, I remember I'm driving in the car with my mom. And all of a sudden, I, here comes the hiccups. And, so I'm, I'm, and she, can, she can hear it because it's painful. And so I hiccup and then I wince. And then I hiccup and, I, and my mom's like, oh, i got the hiccups I see. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And my mom has a theory on how to get rid of the hiccups. She thinks if I scare you, they're going to be gone. And so my mom just gets really suddenly quiet, questionably quiet. But I'm so focused on the hiccup then I'm not thinking, wait, my mom got really quiet after acknowledging that I have the hiccups. And so we exit the freeway, and we turn onto this back road to go back to our house, and all of a sudden she slams on the brakes and just says, ah, and slings her arm in front of me. And I mean, I about jumped through the roof of, or through the top of that car. I mean, it just, I was terrified. And then it got really, really silent as everyone waits with suspense of, wait, am I going to still have the hiccups? And then, Hiccups. Still have the hiccups. But there's a a surefire way to get rid of the hiccups. You ready for it? I learned somehow, maybe it was just God's act of mercy, that you can drink water, you chug about 8 ounces to 10 ounces of water, and then instead of taking a breath after drinking all of your water, you hold your breath and you count to 10. And you will get rid of the hiccups 100% of the time. You want to know how I know this is true? I'm in that car ride, and I have the hiccups. And we have no water. My mom has just tried to scare me. I'm over there trying to hold my breath, right? But now I'm, I'm timid. I'm scared because my mom, every, every turn, she might slam on the brakes and sling her arm to, to try to double down. That if you scare, you can scare the hiccups out of someone. And in that process, I'm accumulating saliva. And I'm packing my cheek with saliva. To the point where, because I don't have any water. And we're not going to pull over to the gas station because we got to get home. But there's too much time before we get home and I'm in pain. So I'm packing my cheeks with saliva. And I wait. And as time continually goes by, I mean, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I'm scared my mom's going to scare me. I ain't got no water, and I got the most painful hiccups of all time. And so I'm packing my cheeks, and all of a sudden I have enough saliva, and I swallowed it, and I held my breath for 10 seconds. Hiccups gone. There's something interesting about a promise, right? Right? People will tell you all these types of promises. They'll say, oh, I promise you, if you get scared good enough, the hiccups will leave you. My mom about gave me a heart attack. Hiccups did not leave me. right? Some will say, oh, if you hang upside down, or oh, if you drink water, or oh, if you, you, know, you hold your breath. I mean, we get, we get told promises to help us deal with, you know, all sorts of things all the time. I remember I was doing uh, inner city ministry one time. And I had recently gotten engaged. And so, you know, I, I, as a guy, you don't really get an engagement ring. And I, thought, I felt kind of bad about that. I thought, that's kind of messed up. Like, how come, how come my now fiancé gets an engagement ring and I have to go around just completely nothing, right? So I went, and I went to Hobby Lobby and I got a, ping, a, a piece of string. And I tied a piece of string around my finger. And so that, that Sabbath, we went to outreach. In the inner city, we did an outreach. And this kid comes up and asks me why I had a a wristband around my finger. And I I got to tell that kid that I had just made a promise to spend the rest of my life with one woman. And I got to talk to him about a promise. And shortly, we navigated from that promise to the promise of Jesus. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But we get told all sorts of promises all the time. And depending on who's telling the promise... We're going to go out and try to experiment. We're going to see, is it actually true? So you guys, several of you are going to try to go get the hiccups, and I can't wait to hear the report of how you got rid of them 100% of the time by my method. I'm, I'm telling you, we should, we should patent it and we'd make a ton of money, right? No, we just want people to, to be alleviated from the, from the sin of hiccups, because the hiccups are terrible. But there was a promise given to an individual from Detroit, Michigan, that was too good to be true. See, his name is Bobby Joe Hill. Bobby Joe Hill comes from Detroit, Michigan. He's a basketball player. But he's a basketball player in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And so he has a dilemma, and it's his skin color. Because he's black, he only gets to play at the portions of the game when the game is out of hand, whether for his team or against his team. But Bobby Joe Hill doesn't realize at one game in particular where the game has gotten out of hand, so he's on the court, and he's stealing the basketball, and he's going up for easy layups, but he's not going to win the game. He's not going to mount the comeback, but at least he gets to play. He loves to play basketball. But he has no idea that there's an individual in the stands by the name of Don Haskins who's just been promoted from being a high school girls basketball coach to the new head coach of the Texas Western Mighty Miners. What an intimidating mascot. And Don Haskins is in Detroit because he doesn't have the funds to recruit the big-name players. He's tried. And so now he's on this recruiting circuit where he's going to Detroit, Michigan, he's going to Chicago, Illinois, and he's going to New York City, New York. Because he's going to go find kids that are playing in the street that are good enough, That nobody is willing to give a chance. And so he goes and he sees Bobby Joe Hill and he comes up to Bobby Joe Hill afterwards. And he tells Bobby Joe that he wants him to come play for him at Texas Western, which is modern day University of Texas, El Paso. Texas Western is not a good basketball team. That's why they hired a a female high school basketball coach. He's known, he's known as a no-nonsense coach. It's fundamentals. Nothing flashy, no behind the back, no you know, in-between the legs, nothing. It's just fundamental basketball. It's just the basics. But Don Haskins is a winner. Everywhere he's gone, he's won. And so he tells Bobby Joe Hill that if Bobby Joe Hill comes to play for him at Texas Western, he will not ride the bench. He'll start. A kid from Michigan takes the word of a coach from Texas, a promise, and it changes his life forever. Because Bobby Joe Hill goes on to lead Texas Western to the NCAA championship, where in the championship game, Bobby Joe Hill is there with four other black players against an all-white Kentucky team, known as the greatest basketball team, perhaps, to never win a championship. They have Louis Dampier, an All-American. They have Pat Riley, who's now the general manager of the Miami Heat. I mean, Pat Riley's a Hall of Famer. And yet, Texas Western beats them in the national championship game because Don Haskins went and gave promises to kids that nobody was willing to give a promise to, and they took him up on it. They moved from Chicago, Detroit, New York City, to El Paso, Texas. Sometimes... The promise seems too good to be true. Sometimes the promise is going to cause you to relocate. Sometimes the promise is going to cause you to do something differently. But promises always carry weight depending on who is the one that gives promises. Who is the one that gives the promise? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. It's going to be page 154 in the Bible under your seat. And we're going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Numbers chapter 13. We're going to be looking at this, uh, this chapter where Israel, they've, they've been delivered. They've been delivered from slavery. They've been brought into freedom, and they're now about to receive what God has promised a long time ago. They're on the horizon. They're on the precipice of entering into God's promise. And they've been lingering at this mountain, getting these instructions, getting organized, being prepared, so that when they enter this land, they're not going to be intimidated. But Israel has this natural thing about them, and that is, they, what they see often dictates their faith. So if they see something, it causes them to question, did God actually mean that? Is the promise actually that certain? Is it 100% effective, or is it only effective for some people? And so Israel, as they're on this this precipice, they come up with this plan. They're going to send some spies into the promised land. Numbers chapter 13, reading in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were the heads of the sons of Israel. These then were their names. And we've already read the names, so we're going to skip that portion. Because because, some of you might might get lost, and that's an interesting spelling. But let's continue on. Verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehab at Lebo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahaman, Shashai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And then they come to this valley, the valley of Eshcol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eshcol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. So Israel goes. They're, They're told to go and spy out the land, right? Now, this is, I mean, this is an espionage, right? Can you imagine 12 spies selected? They're the leaders of their families. And now they're going out into this land. But they've, they, this isn't a, a new land that is now being introduced to them. No, this is the land of promise. So when they were slaves, and they've only known what slavery is, because they were born into slavery, they had heard the stories of this land that had been promised to one of their forefathers. And now they're on the precipice of entering into it. And they're hesitant. And so they want to spy it out first. They want to they they see what it's got before making a commitment to go in, right? Sometimes we, we're on the fence with things, right? Sometimes we sit on the fence. Sometimes we don't want to make a decision. In fact, there's been this erosion of commitment in our society where we're no longer willing to make commitments, to where stories of, of people who, who know what they want and they go after it immediately are more of a rarity than a commonplace. Whenever In reality, it used to be that you knew. If you knew, you made the decision and you went for it. But now we kind of sit and we're, we're complacent. We kind, of, we kind of wait to see if it's going to pan out the way that we, we think it is. And so Israel, instead of, instead of truly saying, let's just march right in there because the Lord has given it to us. They say, no, we're going to send in some 12 spies. And so then they send them in. And this is the report that the spies give. Verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land, at the end of forty days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, "We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified." and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the giants. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. But then here comes, here comes this, this, awesome, this awesome heroic figure, Caleb, rises up, and he's one of the spies And he quiets the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So Israel, they go, they send out the twelve spies, and they go and they see, and the, the fruit is just amazing. I mean, it's, it's like summer season with watermelons, fresh I mean, that's, that's the best season. I'm sorry. Y'all are, y'all are wrong if you think any other season is the best season. Watermelon season is the best season. It's the best fruit. Mangoes, I guess, can make, the, make a case. So mangoes are, you know, but, but no, they, I mean, the fruit in the land, I mean, they come back and they say, yeah, it's just as the Lord had said. It's flowing with milk and honey. But nevertheless, hold on a second, because the people there are strong and the cities are impenetrable, and we can't, we, we can't conquer. Because their eyes dictated whether or not the promise would be true. They started to doubt whether that promise that God had given them was going to be true. Numbers 13 essentially teaches us four things. It teaches us to accept God's promises. It teaches us to remember God's faithfulness, to recall God's generosity, and to receive God's resources. So what does it mean to accept God's promises? See, in in Numbers chapter 13, verse 2, the Lord had spoken to Moses and he says this, Send out for yourself men so that they can spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. So they're told to go and send spies. Why? Because God is going to give the land to them. So God has said, I'm going to give this to you. Not, hey, if you go there and if you're good enough people, once you get inside, and if you, you know, if you line up in the proper order that I just talked to you about, and if you do all of these things properly that we just spent a year covering, then I'm going to give it to you. No, he says, hey, go into the land. Why? Because I'm going to give it to you. Promise. And so they go in, and what do they start to do? They start to second guess the promise. And by second-guessing the promise, who are you really second-guessing? The promise giver. So I have a friend. Every time he's in town, he gets a shout-out. Um, his name is Dr. Alex Wade. He's a physical therapist. I give him a hard time because he's a physical therapist. And uh, he's one of the smartest people I know. And we go rock climbing. We were, I'm, I'm, I'm a, there's no debate here, Alex. I'm a better climber. So. Um, but... No, so we go rock climbing, and when you go rock climbing, you have to have somebody that you trust, because when you're on the wall, and you fall, they're the one that's catching you. I mean, it's just, if you don't trust them, you're, you're going you're to second guess if the hold is actually secure, you're going to climb timidly, and you're not going to be able to, to reach your objective. You have to know who you're trusting. Well, when you're getting on the wall, you have this process where you're like, okay, um, belay on. Which is, hey, you know, are are we good to go? And then they'll respond, yeah, on belay. And then you say, cool. And then you say, climbing. And they're like, climb on. And by their response, they are promising that if you stumble, if you, literally, if you fall off the rock, I'm going to catch you. And if you don't accept that, you're not going to climb. You're not going to advance up the wall. Right? Here is Israel. They've seen God catch them time and time again. He's caught them by bringing them up out of slavery. He's caught them by guiding them by this cloud, this pillar of fire, and and, 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 uh, a cloud by day, and pillar of fire by night. I mean, they've seen God do these things, and now they get into this land, and they're no longer accepting God's promises. And sometimes we as Christians, we start to, we, we receive God, right? We start following God. God does something amazing for us. He delivers us from addiction. He delivers us from broken relationships. He brings us up out of depression. And then we get into freedom, and then we start to see things that look unconquerable. And we start to say, mm, God, I don't, I don't know anymore. I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to take another step. And we start to second guess whether or not the promise that God has given us of, hey, I'm going to give this to you, is truly going to be true. And so Israel, they've, they've been told in Numbers 13, in verse 2, that they are to go spy out the land which I am going to give the sons of. Of Israel. But this is not anything new. See, Israel knew this story. Israel knew that this was a land of promise, because in Genesis 22, verse 17, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says this, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. So notice, this is not to Israel, this is to Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of faith. And it says, God tells Abraham, I'm going to greatly bless you. Well, that had already happened. That was, I mean, at the point in Numbers 13, Abraham's already been greatly blessed. He's had a son. And then it says, and I will greatly multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. We know that that's true, that God followed through on that. Why? Because Israel is now this huge nation that's wandering through the wilderness. So God is two for two right now and keeping the promises that he makes. And then what does it say? And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. So God says, hey, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to give you those cities. I'm going to tear down those strongholds. I'm going to conquer those giants. He's two for two. And now they're getting hung up on the third. As if, oh, God, sorry, your, your power hasn't, you've, you've overstepped, God. Your power has run out here. You've been able to do those things. You brought life out of death. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, being too old for having a child, and yet they had a child, and then that child had a child, and that child had a child. And now this is this great nation, and you did that, God. But now, uh, God, your power, it's run out, surely. The battery, the battery's died. You're, you're, no, you're not powerful enough to overcome these strongholds in these giants because God, it's the sons of the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, these giants, these men of, of great renown, these powerful individuals. Moses, uh, writing in Exodus 19, says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I mean, this is a promise that God had given Israel right as they got to Mount Sinai. He says, look, you saw, I brought you up out of slavery. What other God has done that? What other God steps into the most powerful nation of the world at that time and says, "Hey, in a single night, I'm going to bring you out. You're going to be delivered in a single night. You don't even have to fight. You don't even have to lift a sword. You don't have to even own a sword. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the whole thing. In fact, all you have to do is you have to kill a lamb, and you have to take the blood, and you have to put it over the doorpost. That's it. You have to eat the you have to eat you have to eat a meal. You have to eat a celebratory meal. That's all you have to do to enter into freedom." You just have to receive what I'm going to do on your behalf. You just have to accept the promise that God has given. But then Numbers 13 continues on because it reminds us that we need to remember God's faithfulness. See, the journey that that Israel goes through in Numbers 13, beginning in verse 17, when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev. Then go up into the hill country. And then it's to see what the land looks like. Check out, you know, check out the trees. You know, are, are they good trees? Are they climbing trees? Are they, you know, are they producing great fruit trees? What are the trees like? And then go see what the rivers are like. And then go see, you know, what is the land going to be good for farming? And, and just go check out, just survey the land. And they come in to the land through the Negev, through this region, the Negev. And they're retracing somebody else's steps. See, there, this isn't the first time that God has sent somebody on this path into this land. See, Abraham, before he became Abraham, Abram, he journeyed on continuing toward the Negev. And then Abraham continues even further, and he comes into that promised land, the land that Israel is trying to spy out. They're trying to, they're trying to creep in on because they're afraid of the giants and of the cities and of those, those other people, the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites. And so, Abraham has journeyed there already, and he, being led by God, he gets to that land, and God says, look around. Every place that your eye can see, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. Every place. Not, Not just this kind of corner lot. No, no, no. Every place that your eyes can see is going to be yours and your descendants. And Abraham, being somebody who believed God's promises... He says amen to that, and then he builds an altar, and he builds an altar at this place called Hebron. Now notice where the spies end, verse 22, when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, they arrive at this place where Abraham had purchased a lot of land next to the, the oak of Mamre. He had bought this tomb. That's where he was buried. That's where his wife was buried. That's where his son was buried. That's where his son's son was buried. That's where the spies end their trip into the promised land. It was the most elevated uh, portion of the promised land. About a thousand uh is it a thousand feet? That sounds yeah, it's about a thousand feet above sea level. I was like a thousand miles? That'd be like really high up. I'm terrible. People are shaking their head. Yeah, so it's the most elevated portion in the promised land above sea level. It's the most central point. That's where Abraham had built an altar and purchased his burial site. That's where the spies end up. So they've gotten there. Why? They were were born into slavery. How would they ever be able to see Hebron? Because of God's faithfulness. Because God's faithfulness is what leads them through this land. They're retracing the steps of a promise given not only to them, but to their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham. But even, even more than that, in this beautiful aspect in Genesis chapter 13, so page 12 of your pew Bible, Genesis 13, we see God tell Abraham this beautiful promise. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to your descendants for how long? Forever. Not for a period of time. No, this is given to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so if that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. See, Abraham had this practice where God would give him a promise, and Abraham would say, yep, and he'd start, he'd, he'd start walking on it. He'd just start living like it was true. He would rely on it. It didn't matter what he saw it mattered who gave him the promise. If God gave him the promise, he said, I will, I will put everything I have, I will, I will wager everything I have on that. Why? Because God is the one who gave it to me. He believed. He had, he had this thing called faith, which was just an utter reliance that what God said was going to come about. That's it. So he, not only was Abraham accepting God's promises, but Abraham knew God's faithfulness. And, and Israel is told to remember, to recall God's faithfulness in Numbers 13. They journey through the same steps that their forefather journeyed through. They're given the same promises that were given to him because they were included in the promise. But not only are we, are we able to accept God's promises and remember his faithfulness, but we're also to recall God's generosity. See, the Israelites had never known anything other than slavery. And for some of us, we've never known anything other than disappointment. We've never known anything other than not being able to overcome that addiction or that besetting sin, that thing that creeps in time and time and time and time again. But with Israel, they had this terrible misunderstanding where when things got tough, they naturally wanted to go back to the comforts of their slavery. Why? Because it was dysfunctionally peaceful. It was, it, was, it was a place that they knew all too well. So they knew what to expect. They knew the pain that, that, that their slavery would bring because they knew their taskmasters. They knew the culture. They knew the language. And so now being in freedom was uncomfortable because now they have to... They're exploring the eternal possibilities of being free. They've never known anything other than being told what to do. And yet now God is giving them freedom. He's bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and they're forgetting the generosity that God gave them in bringing them up out of slavery. Because they didn't just get to leave Egypt free. They also took and plundered the Egyptians. They took everything that Egypt had To the point where now they're in the wilderness and they've got this just smooth, beautiful, just amazing tabernacle. They're not not dressed like they're they're, you know these homeless wanderers through the wilderness. Their sandals never wore out. The Bible says, "Yeah, they're eating this manna every day that God is providing, but they're not. They don't look like this ragtag bunch of homeless wanderers that we tend to think of when we think of Israel journeying through the wilderness. They looted." Egypt. They had wealth so that when they would get into the promised land, they could build the city. God wasn't even going to say, oh, now you got to the promised land? Alright, peace. I'm out. That's not what God does. He had already provided the essence of, of what they needed to build their kingdom. And he gave it to them the minute they entered into freedom. And so, Israel, these spies, they've forgotten the generousness, the generosity of God. Look what uh, God says uh, through Moses in Exodus 3, verse 8. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Amorite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. God's going to give them this land that's flowing with milk and honey. They don't have to go and look for milk and honey. It's it's there. They don't have to bring it there. It's there. Now, the cool thing about honey, if you wanted to ever do a Bible study about honey, honey never goes bad. Did you know that? There's no expiration date with honey. And it's a natural antibiotic. So it's naturally got healing properties. Which is why when we are sick and we make some hot tea, we might put some honey in there. It's not just to make it taste better. It's because it's got some medicinal properties in it. And it never goes bad. So God is bringing them to a place that has these characteristics of milk and honey. Honey never goes bad and is a natural antibiotic. So God is bringing them to a place where their prosperity will never cease. They have everything that they need. Not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Because they're a bunch of ragtag, bunch of former slaves. And yet God has been overly generous to them. But then lastly, Numbers 13 shows us how to receive God's resource. And this is the area that I think we struggle with the most. Because to receive God's resource really backpacks off of uh, understanding God's generosity to us, understanding His faithfulness and His promise. Because to receive, I mean, think about it. We talked about it last Sabbath where if you want to receive something, right, how do, you, how do you teach somebody how to eat, how to receive nutrients? You just, I mean, it's just simple, right? Like, we just know. Even if you don't have a spoon, you just take it with your hand, right? And you just bring it up and you put it in your mouth and you chew it up and, and all of a sudden you receive the nutrients. I mean, that's how receiving really is. It's that simple. It's just taking what is offered point blank, And so how do we receive God's resource? Because the spies, these are leaders. They're chosen because they're leaders. And they come back, and yeah, they say, oh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's just as God said it is, except nevertheless, there are these cities, and they're impenetrable. We don't have the military might. We don't have the resources. The the giants, there are these individuals. Now, the, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, some people try to characterize them as if they're like, you know, Eight foot ten or something like that. No, chances are they were just like six foot nine. But if you think about it, as somebody who's vertically challenged, somebody who's five foot eight, I do not want to get in a fight with someone who's six foot nine. I tend to not shy away from any fight. I've just that's a, God has changed my heart now to where my fight is. That let me pray for you, and then the, and then I run. But before it was like okay, you know, let's we can step outside. You can bring your dental insurance and we'll handle it. I mean it's just. But now. I mean, I've been in a fight before, and it's not fun. In fact, it's on YouTube of me getting beat up. And I mean, too many youth have heard, there's a group chat where I have youth who still send me this video, like once a year, some of my favorite kids send this video of me getting beat up by somebody significantly bigger than me in a hockey game. I mean, it's embarrassing. I assure you, you do not want to fight somebody bigger than you. I assure you. And so Israel, I mean, yeah, of course they're going to go in and they're going to see these people that, on average, are, are a lot taller than them, a lot, a lot stronger than them. They're going to be hesitant, but they're not like eight foot ten. They're more like six foot eight, six foot nine. But they're, I mean, I wouldn't want to fight somebody like that, just outright. So the spies, I understand, I understand. They come in and they see this and they see this city like Jericho, that seems impenetrable. They see these individuals that are a lot bigger and stronger and more well-versed in war. And so they might start to think, can God actually do this? And so instead of, instead of going back and saying, hey, let's, as, a, as a nation, let's come together and let's pray about it. They say, no, 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 it's too much. God is going to leave us here. And they, they get the entire congregation to believe it. Why? Not because the congregation is, is ignorant. It's because these were well-trusted leaders. Twelve tribal princes are the ones sent to spy out the land. But there's one individual who reminds us about God and how to receive what he has promised. And his name is Caleb. See, Caleb is is the one. Joshua, we know of Joshua. Joshua is the other, the two faithful, Joshua and Caleb. But Joshua doesn't speak because he's second in command. And so he can't speak, because people are going to say, yeah, 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 but, you know, you're second in command. You kind of have to say that, right? But Caleb has no ties. And yet Caleb gets up, and he quiets everyone, and he says, no, 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 if God promised it, he'll bring it about. But because of these ten, Israel says, nope, sorry, we can't. And so God brings judgment, because they didn't believe. They weren't willing to receive what God had promised. And so he brings judgment. Now, sometimes we're, as Christians, we're afraid of judgment. But, I mean, realistically, it's a very fair judgment when God just says, Oh, you didn't want to receive what I had provided. Okay, then I will give you what you are really asking. And so he gives them what they're really asking, which is to go and fight in their own strength. And they realize that they've messed up. And so actually, in chapter 14, they try to go and fight in their own strength, and they lose. Because God gave them what they really, truly wanted in their hearts, which was they wanted to do it on their own. They wanted to to be their own leaders. They wanted to to come up with their own promises. They didn't want to rely on what God had said and the promise that he had given, even though they didn't bring themselves up out of slavery. God did that. But Caleb, Caleb was told that he would wander with Israel another 40 years in the wilderness until God would have another generation that he would allow to enter the promised land because of the unbelief that the original census didn't have. And there's this awesome scene where Caleb, after they've entered the promised land, they've conquered Jericho, they're, they're driving out these giants and they're taking these impenetrable cities. Caleb pulls rank. He comes up and Joshua is dividing the land and here comes Caleb and he says, Yeah, I'm first. And everyone's like, ah oh, man, Caleb, he's gonna pick the best land. Why? He's the elder statesman, but Caleb, why why you gotta be like that, man? Like, why just just wait? Like, we want that land, right? Don't take that land. You ever been in one of those drawings, like a like a white elephant Christmas party, and then you find out that there's that one gift, and you're like, oh man, I hope nobody gets it. Right? And you're hoping, you're almost praying, that you're number one, that you get to because you know what a gift it is. But Caleb. Paul's rank. He's the elder statesman. He's 85 years old now. And he, he comes, and he doesn't ask for the best lot of land. He says, Joshua, I want the land that I spied out, that the generations before us said God would not give us, and I'm at 85 years old going to go and take it. Because Caleb understood that to receive God's resource is, really means to remind yourself of what God has already given to remind yourself of how God has faithfully been there day in and day out. And that he has given you a promise. That promise is found in the person of Jesus. It's the most definitive promise there is. God has said that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you, A righteous man may fall seven times. With seven times he gets back up. Why? Because of Jesus. Lamentations 3. For uh, the Lord's mercies are new each and every morning. So when we wake up. That is God's generosity allowing us to wake up. When we get up each day with a new opportunity to serve God, to repent, to turn from our own way and go back to God's way, that is God being faithful, generous, because he's given a promise. And that is that he is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to abundantly pardon. God has given a promise, and his name is Jesus. In fact, I promised myself I wouldn't do this, but Christmas season... We haven't even had Thanksgiving yet, and I'm a Scrooge. But Christmas is really the celebration of unto us a son is given. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us, because Jesus is the greatest promise ever given. He is the promised land. Jesus is it. And so we sometimes struggle. We sometimes have a hard time receiving his resource. it's because we've forgotten how generous God was when it says in Ephesians 1-3 that God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in all of heaven by giving us Jesus. When we forget his faithfulness, which is he's the one who went to the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to be fearful of death. In fact, death is like a sunset to us because we know in whom we believe because he's given us a promise. Don Haskins, coach of Texas Western, shows up to Detroit, Michigan, and he sees this five foot ten point guard, Bobby Joe Hill. And he's so good that Don Haskins says, I'll give, you, I'll give you a scholarship and I'll let you play starting minutes. You just take me to the championship. And Bobby Joe Hill and, and Don Haskins, you know, they, surely they butted heads because Bobby Joe Hill was the starting point guard. But in the championship game, when they needed it the most, Bobby Joe Hill rewarded Don Haskins for his faith and went and stole the ball twice within the span of a minute off of two legendary collegiate basketball players. Bobby Joe Hill didn't deserve to even be in that game because society said he was deemed unfit. We do not deserve to be in heaven because we have gone based off of nothing that we can control, unlike Bobby Joe Hill, but because we just, we just said, God, I'd rather do it myself. And yet God said, no, 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 I will give you a promise. I will come... Myself, I'll stand in your place, and I'll give you eternity if you'll just accept it. That's Numbers 13. Spies didn't want to accept it because their eyes caused doubt, and they doubted the promise giver. We have a certain promise giver. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you because, Lord, even in a book of Numbers, we see good news. Lord, I want to pray for for our church. I pray for those here. Because, Lord, some of us are struggling. Some of us are are hurting. Some of us need uh, repaired relationships. Some of us need you to open a a door for, for a better job. And so, Lord, we come to you because you're the God that that has already drawn near to us. And so even our coming to you is not that much of a journey. In fact, it's just turning our face. And, Lord, we just present everything, all that we have to you. And we say, Lord, come in and change. Come in and heal. Come in and redeem. Help us to not be like these ten spies where our situations... Whatever we're facing makes us doubt your ability to follow through on your promises. Because, Lord, you have spoken definitively in these last days in the greatest promise ever given to the human race, and that is in the person of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray, Lord. Amen.